Chapter Five of the Teacup Club. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teacup Club by Eliza Armstrong. Chapter Five. The Club settles some currency problems. The topic for today's discussion will be currency problems of the present day. Observed the president after the club had come to order. And I hope you are all prepared. There is only one currency problem in the present day, to my knowledge at least, and that is how to make two dollars do the work of ten. Dear me, there is something actually masculine in your flippancy," said the president with ferocious gentleness. The question before us is one of the deepest gravity, and nobody knows that better than myself. Don't I lie awake night after night? Wondering how to get my new things out of the money my father has allowed me for the purpose, or better yet, how to coax more out of him, without letting him realise the fact. Don't talk about money, please. It makes me blue. What with never having enough for myself and constantly seeing other people with more than I like them to have, I. What I want to know is, and you ought to be able to tell me, girls, why a woman who looks all sweetness and gentleness should suddenly develop into a raging lioness just because her own son wants to marry some nice girl," sighed the girl with the eyeglasses, waking suddenly out of a reverie. "Humph! There are some things I don't quite understand myself, such as the banking system, and the reason why your dressmaker tells you calmly that she must have two yards and a half more of your dress material." When you have plainly informed her that you bought a remnant, but as for your question, it is so simple that a man could answer it. No woman ever did or ever will like to play second fiddle to another one, and oh nonsense! It is just a question of tact. Let a man make his mother believe that she has chosen his wife, and she yes. And wouldn't it be pleasant to have your mother-in-law tell you, every time she wanted you to discharge the cook or do with a new gown, that her son would never have married you but for her. Speaking of mothers-in-law, Nell is to have a new woman in that capacity. I found her crying the other day because she had heard that Madame considered her too domestic to make her son a good wife. Yes, I know. And did you hear of Alice's woes? No. Well, you know she and Morton fell in love at first sight and became engaged two weeks later. After the engagement was announced, she was invited to visit his people in Iowa, and went in fear and trembling, for she did not know much about them, and Morton could not be there at the time. Hadn't the courage, you mean? Very likely, dear. Well, his mother was as bad as Alice had feared. Her ideas were all in direct opposition to Morton's, and the poor girl almost fretted herself into nervous prostration trying to please them both. After all, when she got home, she found. That she had been mistaken in her feelings for Morton, and it didn't make any difference whether they were pleased or not. I knew how it would end when you began. No, she discovered that Madame was only his stepmother after all. Imagine trying to please a mother-in-law and a stepmother combined. I'd rather not fancy it," said the president with a shudder. "Girls, I only hope you will be as lucky when you are married as I am, for." You aren't going to tell us all of Tom's virtues again, are you? Said the girl with the dimple in her chin uneasily. When my mother-in-law becomes unpleasant, I just ask her to go with me to spend the day with Tom's grandmother. Went on the president, affecting not to hear the last remark. She doesn't dare to refuse because the old lady has some china which we both want, and she's afraid I may succeed in wheedling it out of her. It is great fun to hear my own mother-in-law. Lectured by 
her mother-in-law on the sins which the former thinks I have appropriated entirely to my own use. But, um, doesn't Tom's mother take it out of you on the way back? No, dear. You see, I am careful not to sit with her in the train, and Tom always meets us at the station. Besides, she's hardly in her usual form, and I could be a match for her. Oh, girls, speaking of mothers-in-law makes me think of wedding presents. Did you, oh, did you hear about the plates I gave Elizabeth? Yes, I did. And a girl that gives away old crown Darby like that is either an angel or not quite sane. I don't know which. Say anything you like. I haven't the spirit to reply. And after you've heard the story, well, it was this way. I ran across the dozen of them in a little second-hand shop, and the proprietor didn't seem to know their value, and asked a very moderate price. I beg your pardon, dear. I take back all that I said before. You needn't. I saw that I could beat him down, so I didn't take them then, but went in a day or two later, taking Elizabeth along to make sure they were genuine. Really, she does know something about China, though... She doesn't know anything else. Well, they were genuine, weren't they? They were. Elizabeth became so affectionate on the spot that I saw she knew what I wanted them for. I didn't take them then, but went back the next day to find that the man had raised his price. He said another person wanted them. As if I'd believe that. Well, it went on for a week until the price demanded was so outrageous that I should never have paid it, but for the fact that Elizabeth had told everybody what lovely Crown Derby plate she was to have, and I wasn't going to have her say that I couldn't afford them. I should think not. Besides, it is necessary to give Elizabeth a handsome present, since she is marrying a wealthy man. Of course. If he was poor, a very simple thing would... Uh, be in better taste so that the contrast would not be so great. Mm-hmm. Well, I bought the plates and took them to her myself because I wanted to see her face when she opened the package. But she wasn't surprised, was she? Yes, she was. She, well, she was the other person who wanted to buy them and whose inquiries had trebled the price I had to pay for them. In the face of a tragedy like that, it seems hopeless to offer consolation. Still, Elizabeth will be obliged to give you a handsome present when you are married. Let us hope she will not have had time to forget her obligations, said the blue-eyed girl sweetly. Of course, she has a good memory, but... I only hope somebody will give her two chafing dishes, broke in the president. I only have one, and if I was not the sweetest tempered mortal in the world, Tom and I would quarrel seriously over it. Perhaps I ought not to speak of myself in that way, but... You surely ought to know your good points better than anybody else does. Very true, dear. You see, Tom thinks he is a chafing-dish cook. And really, he can cook. But the last time he made a rarebit, my waitress gave warning, because of the state in which she found the dining-room, which was very mean of her, because we had waited on ourselves to save trouble. Partly for that, and partly because you wanted to talk about Coralie, and her sister is her cook. I remember. I was there. Yes, but she didn't know that we wanted to talk about Coralie, and I told her that it was to save her trouble. Wasn't that the time that the rabbit made you ill, and the doctor couldn't come because he, too, had eaten some of it? It was. I told Tom then that he must leave out either the doctor or me when he made Rarebit again. With the result... 
that we didn't speak for three days, dear. It was during that time that I went to Annie's chafing-dish party. She wanted me to make a cheese omelette, and I sent over for the dish. My messenger found Tom in the dining-room with a whole party of men. Cooking? On your chafing-dish? No, trying to entertain them while the new waitress hunted for it. But where was it? You hadn't taken it. No, dear. The cook had borrowed it for a chafing-dish party of her own, and neglected to mention the fact to either Tom or me. Then I suppose, really, that each family should possess two chafing-dishes, said the brown-eyed blonde thoughtfully. Yes, or none at all. Of course I am very much interested in this discussion, but I wonder if a thorough knowledge of currency problems will do us any practical good. None of us are earning our own living, and when Papa talks about currency problems at home, it is only to point out the moral that times are hard, so... There is where your knowledge will be most useful. You can bring it out to prove that time's not hard, and run off a lot of statistics to prove your point. But I don't know any statistics. I'm afraid you have not been paying strict attention today. However, if you are in danger of losing in an argument, be sure to say, with a smile of superiority, I suppose you know what the statistics are? Now... People are not in the habit of carrying statistics around like cough drops, and they will simply give up the battle on the spot. If they don't, rattle off a lot of figures. They can't refute them immediately, and if they attempt to do it afterward, you can just say, in a supercilious tone, I thought we settled that matter yesterday. Well, I declare, that is just my own father's line of argument, and yet it never occurred to me that I could imitate it. I do hope you will take very good care of your health, Evelyn. People who are very intellectual are so apt to die young. I shall. I've no notion of dying and having Tom a widower while he is still young enough to be attractive. It would not make so much difference after that, for I shall take care that he does not accumulate enough money to make him fascinating at seventy-five. Dear, dear, I wonder why so few men have money until their hair is only a memory. Case of the wind being tempered to the shorn lamb. After all, a man must sacrifice something on the altar of success. Hmm. Isn't it usually his wife? Not if she is clever. Girls, I once knew a woman whose husband made a fortune in two years, and he wouldn't give her more than the merest pittance for dress and entertaining. In fact, the only bills he would pay, without grumbling, were those of the doctor. And what do you think she did? She selected the doctor whose bills were the most outrageous and settled herself to be a chronic invalid. She said she was determined to get something out of her husband's fortune. Good. I do hope she really enjoyed herself after that. I'm afraid not. You see, the doctor seemed anxious to earn his money and insisted that she had some desperate disease. I doubt if she enjoyed his subsequent visits. All her husband's fault, too. And yet... I doubt if she reproached him for it. It seems to be a woman's province to suffer in silence. Yes, I've often heard my mother make that very remark to my father. I had rather not quote his reply. Girls, I had the funniest story yesterday. Annie wouldn't tell me who was the heroine of it, really. Sometimes she is as provoking as a man. I'll be even with her, however, for I'll never rest until I find out who it was. Then I shall tell everybody and Annie will never be able to convince her that she didn't tell the whole. 
It seems that this girl had quarrelled with the man to whom she was engaged, and a week later she received a letter addressed in his own handwriting. She didn't think of taking it to a mind reader, but it was near the end of the month, and she hadn't the money, so... By the way, Emily dear, when can you come to lunch with me? I don't see half as much of you as I'd like to, and... Any day you like, dear. Where was I? Oh, she had the money, and the tea kettle happened to be handy, so she... But why not open it with a hairpin like any other letter? She wanted to return it unopened if she didn't like its contents. It proved to be perfectly horrid. He not only didn't acknowledge that he was in the wrong, but he actually brought forward facts to prove that she was. Of course, no girl would endure that, so... Do you mean to say that Annie told you that? I don't think it possible that any girl... Oh, I don't see the harm in that. Of course, every girl wants her own way. Well, she sealed up the letter again, wrote on it, returned unopened, and sent it back. Hmm. I was thinking that might have been Clarissa, but she is too intellectual to do anything so clever. Anyhow, I'm glad she got the better of him. But she didn't, dear. She discovered, after the messenger had been gone an hour, that she had sealed up the envelope without replacing the letter in it. Can any of you guess who it was that... Not I. But if I had done such a thing, I should never have trusted Annie with it. Why, are you going, dear? I'm going over to Annie's this very minute. I I have something to say to her that will touch even her hardened conscience. So it was Marion after all, mused the girl with the dimple in her chin after the door had closed behind her friend. Well, at any rate, after this, Annie will tell me the whole of the story when she begins it. I must say, though, that if I was in her place, it would be a long time before I began one. So you, too, have been confiding in Annie? By the way, I am to stay overnight with her, but I promise you that whatever she may repeat will be safe with me. While we are discussing currency problems, I want to say what a nuisance the cheque system is. I always did hate to get my money in that way, and I had an experience the other day which surely ought to cure my father of giving them to me. Mercy! You weren't suspected of being a forger, were you? Asked the President, turning pale. No, no I believe not, but it happened that my father gave me a cheque when I was going shopping, and I found before I cashed it that I must have five dollars more. Father had gone to Indianapolis, and Mother, well, the fact is, that she will not loan me money any more, because I sometimes forget to return it. I didn't know what to do until I suddenly remembered that Ned Goldie was the person who had to cash the cheque for me at the bank. Then I knew I was safe. Sure, it just shows that you can never depend on a man. He surely did not refuse to cash it. No, no but he... Girls, I'll tell you just what I did. I said, by the way, Mr Goldie, just give me five dollars more, will you? Father can make it right next time he comes in. And if you will credit the fact, he actually said he couldn't do it. A man with whom I had danced the German the evening before. I never believed Ned Gordy would be so stingy. What excuse did he make? Said it was against the rules of the bank. But he would be delighted to lend me the extra five dollars. Did you ever hear of such impertinence in your life? As soon as my father comes home, I shall tell him that he must transfer his account to another bank. After this, I feel that Mr Goldie is not a person to be trusted with money. Dear, dear, that is very bad. Don't mention it outside the club, girls. 
for if the bank directors found that he was being rude to the daughter of one of their customers, he would lose his position at once. And there may be some apology or explanation he can make to your father, too, dear. Though I confess I don't see what it can be. Well, girls, I'm afraid we must adjourn, and I must say frankly that I am pleased with the work we have done today. The only reason that I suggested such a weighty topic for discussion was that Tom had declared that the club was unable to grapple with it. After that, of course, the only thing possible was to show him that he was wrong. Which you can now do conclusively, and I am quite sure he will be surprised at the novelty of some of the arguments advanced this afternoon. What is it, dear? asked the girl with the dimple in her chin, as she and the blue-eyed girl turned the corner. You have been so bright and cheerful today, and I am sure something is seriously wrong. Indeed there is. Jack has behaved abominably. It was enough when he told Effie that Francis is the most amiable girl he ever knew, but— That proves conclusively that he is not engaged to her, dear. No man ever knows anything about a girl's temper until he is engaged to her. Oh, if you want to defend him, I shall say no more, but I did think— But I don't want to defend him. I only— Then all I've got to say, Emily Marshmallow, is that you are prejudiced against the poor fellow. I might have known that from the start. I only wish I had not taken your advice and broken my engagement. But you didn't do it on my advice. It was all done before you said a word to me about it. Well, anyhow, I knew you would advise me to it, and now you are not satisfied with what I've done. But go on, don't spare me. I am too miserable to care to defend myself. I don't believe I shall live very long anyhow. I shall tell them to give you my Marquis ring as a token of forgiveness when I'm gone. I hope you will remember me when you look at it, and be sure to notice if the stones are quite secure in their setting. I will, I promise you, sobbed the girl with the dimple in her chin. But don't you think a trip, well, a trip to Alder Point Comfort might save your life? They tell me it is very gay there now. Nothing can save me now, dear. Why, I could hook all my gowns now without holding my breath. And yesterday I ate no luncheon at all. Took nothing between breakfast and dinner but a couple of cream sodas, a box of caramels, and a cup or two of afternoon tea. You know nobody can live long at that rate. Well, I am sorry for Jack Bittersweet when I am gone. A lifetime of remorse and—and Francis is not a pleasant thing to look forward to. You haven't told me yet about Jack, dear, so— True, and someone should know the true story when I am no more. Here is the place where they make such nice chocolate. Let us stop in and drink a cup while I tell you. You take the chair facing the mirror, dear, she said, as they selected a table. My personal appearance is no longer a matter of importance to me. You said that Jack— Has behaved abominably. It is a long story, but I— I shall probably never tell you another long story, so you can afford to listen to this one. You know the little beggar boy with the beautiful brown eyes that I told you about a week or two ago? Yes, but about Jack, I— This is about Jack. I told you how I sympathized with that boy's sad story and went with him to investigate it, didn't I? Yes, but he never told me whether his home was— I didn't get there. He led me through the most awful slums, telling me all the time how his father would beat him when he failed to bring money home, and how he knew I was the beautiful lady he had dreamed of as soon as he saw me. Well, go on, dear. Oh, nothing. Only the horrid little wretch suddenly dived down an alley and disappeared. And, oh, Emily, I—I I believe he made a face at me as he went. 
Worse yet, when I felt for my pocketbook, it was gone, and I had to walk all the way home. Oh, my goodness! Had he taken it? I surely had not given it to him. I had almost forgotten the affair when the cook came up yesterday to tell me that he was in the kitchen and had brought my pocketbook back, with a long story about having seen another boy take it. Said he had followed him when he left me, and taken it away from him in turn. Wow, I declare! And that was all your money intact, after you had doubted his honesty. Not a cent of it, dear, and the cook said he was wearing a nice new suit. I told her she had better go back to the kitchen and count the spoons. And I called loudly after her, tell him I never want to see his deceitful face again. The housemaid had come to the door of my room, too, and was trying to put in a word, but I wouldn't listen to her. Try to excuse a little wretch, the idea! That was what I thought, but, oh, Emily, just then the front door closed with a bang which shook the house to its foundations, and then I noticed for the first time that the housemaid was trying to give me a card. Good gracious, Dorothy, you never mean to say— That it was Jack's. Indeed I do. He had heard me scream over the banister, tell him to go away. I never want to see his deceitful face again. And he—he he must have thought I meant it for him. Oh, Emily— was there ever such a miserable girl as I? End of chapter 5